Jim said, um, for those who don't know me, I'm Caitlin, and I work for Kingdom Vineyard as a pastoral assistant slash intern, um, and I'm really glad to be spending Good Friday with you all. Um, so Good Friday is a bit of an ironic name, um, because I've been living in these passages of the cross for about the past month, um, and it isn't all that great. And I'm not sure I'd recommend it, <laughs> except I've also learned a lot from it, so I also do commend it to you. Um, the story of the death of Jesus is one that most of us know well. You know, we've read it and we believe it, but I'm not sure how many of us can say that we have really read it, really sat in the scriptures of the journey to the cross, really considered what it was like on that day all those years ago. Jim often asks us to look at a Bible passage and ask what do we think this tells us about what God is like? Where do we even begin with Good Friday? With the cross? With God the Son tortured and murdered so that I can know God's love? without the barrier of my own rebellion? I'm not sure I have a good answer to the question, um, but I can tell you that the journey has left me really broken, but also really thankful. The goal for this evening is to spend time walking through Jesus's journey to the cross, starting at the Garden of Gethsemane and reflecting on the events of his suffering so that we don't skip over the unpleasant parts before we jump straight to the joy of Sunday. I also want to consider what we can learn about who God is in the process. So I'm gonna start in Mark chapter 14, verses 32 to 36. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. So after the Last Supper that Jesus shared with his disciples, he made his way to Gethsemane, garden at the foot of the Mount of Olives. He knows that he's about to be betrayed, so he retreats to be in the garden with his father. He prays that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, Everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. He is on his knees, looking to his Abba Father, asking, Lord, why me? Does it really have to be this way? I think we so often look at Jesus as the superhero saviour who skipped his way to the cross with a cape tied around his neck. <laughs> This isn't what we see here. It's not who Jesus is. 
Jesus is fully God, but he is also fully human. And this is a human moment. We can see similar responses in the Old Testament when God called someone to do something uncomfortable. Moses, in speaking to God at the burning bush in Exodus 3, said, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? In other words, Lord, why me? I can't do that. Then even after God affirms Moses, telling him that he will be with him, even after showing him miraculous signs like turning his staff into a snake and then back again, Moses still says, please send someone else. We say, here I am, Lord, send me. And then when he does, our immediate response is, Lord, anyone but me. (laughs) And if me, then who else is coming with me? And then we look at Jonah, and when God calls him to preach to the city of Nineveh, he just straight up runs in the opposite direction to Tarshish. It is totally normal and completely human when God calls us to do something challenging, to respond with, Lord, why? Why me? Why this way? Why now? And this is how we can see Jesus responding at the beginning of the passage. For me, this makes Jesus so much more relatable. I too know the feeling of why me, why now? (laughs) Please, Lord, someone else. (laughs) And I'm sure you know that feeling too. But Jesus also says, yet not what I will, but what you will. As much as Jesus in the garden does betray his humanness, this part of his prayer also displays his divinity. It's what we don't see in Moses straight away, or with Jonah, although they do both follow God's plan in the end. Jesus is radically obedient and radically willing to lay down his life to follow God's will. But that doesn't take away from the fact that he is fully human too. This experience that Jesus had in the Garden of Gethsemane was not taking off a box on his superhero to-do list. This is human Jesus, filled with sorrow and deep distress, calling out to his Father. I really think recognising the humanity of Jesus, especially in his walk to the cross, is absolutely key to grasping what he did and how difficult it was. To prepare for this evening, Jim made me read the four accounts of Jesus' death again and again and again. And what hit me the most is that it's absolutely heartbreaking. Jesus was betrayed by one of his best friends. Judas led a crowd armed with swords and clubs to arrest Jesus. Judas is one of his closest friends in his closest circle who is doing Jesus' works, who is out healing in his name. And even worse, he was betrayed with an act of affection, with a kiss. And do you know what Jesus said? He said, do what you came for, friend. Friend. 
Judas just betrayed him, brought an army of people ready and willing for a fight, and Jesus turned around and called him friend. Honestly, like, imagine it. Your best friend, one who has walked with you faithfully, turning their back on you and everything that you said, that they've said, sorry, and sending you off to prison. Think about the anger that you would feel, the upset, the hurt. It's heartbreaking to even think about. Could you imagine if your closest friend did that to you? in full knowledge of your innocence. Could you imagine still calling them friend after that? Yet this is what Jesus did. Judas brought with him this armed crowd of people, which you think is pretty intimidating. And then this happens. Peter, obviously Peter, because (laughs) who else would it be? decides to whip out his sword and take on this mob himself. (laughs) And he begins by cutting the ear off of the servant of the high priest. Nice one. (laughs) But I mean, kudos to him and his effort and willingness to defend Jesus. (laughs) But what I love the most is Jesus' response. Jesus responds with, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. That's Luke 22, verse 51. His response is stop. No more of this. Calm down. And he reaches out and heals. Jesus is stood there facing this army of men with swords ready to take him away and fight if they have to. And not only does he willingly go with them, but he stops to heal the servant's ear on the way. Going back to the question that I mentioned in the beginning, what does this tell us about what God is like? Here, this tells me that in the moment of his arrest, and not only does Jesus not call for an army of angels to strike them all down, but he stops his friends from defending him and he stops to heal a member of the very mob who has come for him. This tells me that God is incredibly compassionate. He cares about people even when they're doing the wrong thing, even when they're in the act of arresting him, putting putting him up for false trial, crucifying him. This blows my mind, what a kind and compassionate God we have. Jesus is seized and led away to the house of the high priest to be put on trial. They were looking for false evidence so they could charge Jesus with a death sentence. People came forward with their false testimonies, which we all know are lies. We know it's a harsh and manipulative scheme. It's politics at its worst, but it gets worse. He's on trial and they're spitting on him and they're beating him. Matthew 16, verse 67 to 68 says, They spat in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? I know you've heard this story before. I have. But I think. 
think our familiarity of it can soften the horror of what we're actually hearing. Can you imagine the horror of anyone being treated this way? Of one of your best friends being treated like this? When I think about it, it makes me feel sick. It's awful. The whole thing is so unfair. From the arrest and the betrayal to the mockery Jesus experiences. It's just really unfair. That Jesus that you talk to when you pray, the one who walks alongside you and sits with you when things are falling apart, that human Jesus experienced this. It's not nice and it's not fair. And then we get to the next bit of the story, which I can't get my head around. Not that the first half was any more understandable. Like I've said already, in preparation for tonight, I've read and read and read this section of the Gospels. And I just really don't get it. I can't fathom how much people wanted Jesus dead. Jesus is now standing before Pilate, the governor, in those days, it was tradition that at the festival, they would release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. So then begins this comparison between Jesus and Barabbas. He's a murderer. A comparison between Jesus, the son of God, who has been raising people from the dead, to Barabbas, a murderer. When the crowd is asked who they'd like to be released, they shout for Barabbas. And when asked what therefore should be done with Jesus, they shout crucify him. Even Pilate, who the council leaders took Jesus to in order to get permission to use the death sentence, was not up for being associated with this death. He washed his hands in front of the crowd and said, I am innocent of this man's blood. It is your responsibility. The crowd continues to scream and Matthew 27 verse 25 records them shouting, his blood is on us and on our children. That's how much they wanted him dead. They'd rather have a murderer out and they're happy for the guilt of the death of innocent Jesus to rest on them and their children. Remember, this is God's people screaming this. And do you know how I felt when I lived in this part of the text? It made me really angry, and it takes quite a lot to get me angry. How weird is it to feel sorry for God, to live in a place of defending him, Every part of me who hates oppression and injustice was riled up at this. Quite recently, there was a situation where someone did something that just wasn't very nice, wasn't very honoring to someone that I care about. I was so frustrated and really worked up to the point I didn't sleep the night before or the night after because it was just so unfair and it was that same feeling that I had when reading this. Barabbas was released 
and Jesus was handed over to be crucified. But first he was taken to be tortured. The soldiers beat him. Not only does my heart break for Jesus, the person who was walking around Israel who endured these horrific things, I couldn't shake thinking about what this must have been like for his faithful disciples. To be in the crowd watching his humiliation. Jesus was stripped down, dressed in royal robes, and then a crown made of thorns was twisted together and pressed into his head all to mock him. He was then put back in his own clothes and led away to be crucified. Now have you ever pictured what it might be like to have your clothes gambled off you? It says here that they cast lots for his clothes. They cast lots for his clothes. Is that not sickening? And this is going on right in front of Jesus. What must that have been like? And what must that have been like for Peter, stood in the crowd watching his rabbi, his teacher, his Messiah and his saviour, and even more his best friend, being literally beaten and having his clothes bid off to the crowd. I'm going to embarrass my friend Davina, who's come over from Glasgow to be here. She is one of my best friends. <laughs> Davina's doing mission work through living community in a really rough area of Glasgow. And I'm sure she won't mind me saying that it isn't always sunshine and rainbows. There are many joys and I love celebrating those with her. But there's also a lot of trials and challenges Days that are just really difficult. Tabina and I chat all the time to stay updated on what's going on in each other's lives. We sit in our respective bedrooms on FaceTime and sometimes it looks like this. Tabina is crying because it's been one of those really rough weeks. And then on the other end of the line, you have me crying just because she's crying. <laughs> because she's hurting. It's a whole lot of ridiculousness, and we laugh at ourselves a lot. But our friendship is celebrating the highs of each other, but also sharing the lows. This is how I feel when Davina has simply had a rotten day. I think Jesus had more than just a rubbish day. His friends watched him physically abused and then crucified. How must that have felt? I feel hurt when my friends have just had a bad day. I can't imagine what I'd feel if I had to watch any of them endure even a tiny bit of what Jesus did. We've walked through the journey of Jesus from Gethsemane to him being hung up on the cross. And as we come towards the end, I'm just going to read Mark's account of Jesus' death. You very well may know this inside and out, but I want to invite you to maybe even close your eyes. Picture yourself there and allow God to really bring this to life for you and give you a fresh perspective. 
is Mark chapter 15, verse 29 to 30, 22 to 39. And they brought Jesus to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They offered him wine drugged with myrrh, but he refused it. Then the soldiers nailed him to the cross. They divided his clothes and threw dice to decide who would get each piece. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. A sign announced the charge against him. It read, the King of the Jews. Two revolutionaries were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. The people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Ha, look at you now, they yelled at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well then, save yourself and come down from the cross. The leading priests and teachers of religious law also mocked Jesus. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross so we can see it and believe him. Even the men who were crucified with Jesus ridiculed him. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. Then, at three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eloi, 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 lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah. One of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding it up to him on a reed stick so he could drink. Wait, he said, let's see whether Elijah comes to take him down. Then Jesus uttered another loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the Roman officer who stood facing him saw how he had died, he exclaimed, this man truly was the son of God. I had read these passages more than once before the beginnings of my preparation for tonight, but never have I really dwelt in them. It is grim, it is emotional, and it is brutal. It's brutal to the point that it's difficult to read. And because we know the end, it's so hard to fully dwell in this moment. And because it is so grim, I think we don't really want to. But because we know the end, we can overlook the gravity, the severity, and despair of the cross. We are desensitized to just how sick and vile the whole story is. We miss out on an understanding of the seriousness and the scale of the sacrifice that Jesus made for us on the cross. 
It's a really sad story that humanity's disobedience led to this. It should have been us. It should have been us on that cross, not Jesus. And to skip, to miss out on mourning Jesus and mourning the destruction of humanity is dishonouring and disrespectful of what Jesus did. As I've said, one of the questions Jim likes to ask me is what does this tell us about what God is like? I've been reflecting on this question over the past month and this is what I think. It tells me how incredible God's love for us is. To have his son come down as a suffering servant to reveal his kingdom to us and then to be tortured and killed, to pay the price for the wreck that we caused, all to bring us back into relationship with him so that we may know him. To be honest, there isn't really words that feel big enough or powerful enough to explain what this tells me about what God is like, but it leaves me with an overwhelming affection for Jesus and it leaves me with a renewed desire to spend time with him, to know him, and to know the Father who did all of this, not just for me, but for absolutely everyone. So if you all just stay seated, and I'll pray for us, and then Lizzie will come back up and play a song for us to listen to as we continue our reflection. Father, we just thank you for what you did for us. We thank you for the cross and for your great love and kindness that is so big that we can't even explain. Lord, would you help us to fully grasp the sacrifice that you made? Bring it to life for us so that we may be filled with more love gratitude for you so we can fully celebrate all the more on Sunday. Would you pour out your presence here, Lord?